Hi. Uh, I preach, if you're new to the church, on a semester basis, which is to say that generally speaking, I'll preach on uh, something in the New Testament from September through January, at which point I'll switch wherever we are in that book to something in the Old Testament that'll take us through the spring semester, and then in the summer we'll do something else. That's a structure that I think helps us to have a balanced diet as a congregation. But when I started with uh, John in the fall of 2017, we didn't return to it in the fall of 2018 for one reason. Uh, if you recall what that is, and that's because Marty asked me uh, to continue in Philippians throughout the fall and to complete the book of Philippians. And when Marty asked me something, I am happy to acquiesce whenever I can to, uh, to that request. And so it was delightful to be in Philippians, but it has meant that we've had a little bit of a significant time between uh, then and now, between John 6 and picking up where we are in John 7. If you'd like to go back and read that, uh, or at least familiarize yourself with what was before, that might be helpful as we continue in John for this fall semester. It is good, and I've said this before, but it bears repeating each time we start back into the Gospels, it is good for us as the people of God to regularly spend time in the Gospels and considering them. Because amongst other things, it is a reminder for us that our faith is not merely some kind of practical, ethical system that we are living. It is not only a worldview. It is not only a set of beliefs that we say and agree to together, but it is, in fact, a living relationship with the living Lord. And when we come to the Gospels, we are again and again confronted with Jesus himself and have the opportunity to walk with him who walked with us. And so that's the refreshing thing about always being close to the Gospels. We can and should find that in all parts of the Scriptures, but the Gospels allow us to do that in a particular way. As I've quoted before, Thomas Akempis says, let it then be our chief study to meditate on the life of Jesus Christ. And that's what we do together today. We walk once again with Jesus, in this case through John chapter 7. And a reminder, uh, because it's been a while, one could spend infinite, I suppose, amounts of time in the Gospel of John drilling into particular sections, particular verses, even particular phrases. But what we are taking as an approach instead, and what I think is best for us as a congregation, is to look at it in kind of large chunks. And so uh, sometimes that means, like today, we're going to look at all of a chapter, even though, frankly, the chapter's got a lot that's going on in it. Other times we'll slow down just a little bit because it helps to do so. But we're looking at all of John 7 today. And so with that introduction, let me pick up where Blake left off for us earlier. I'm going to read from verse 25 to the end of the chapter. This is the Word of God. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him, 
can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I've not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where, I'm, where I am, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who said to them, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would help us to hear you correctly this morning. We need your spirit poured out upon us so that these words just don't bounce off of us. And we thank you for this word that's before us today. Help us to learn and help us to grow uncloud our cloudy minds. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In The Magician's Nephew, C.S. Lewis has a young girl whose name is Polly, and Polly is speaking to Aslan, and if you do not know the Chronicles of Narnia series, Aslan is the Christ figure who is, in fact, a lion. 
And as Polly is speaking to Aslan, she's referencing a, a, a man, an older man, who is a supposed ma magician who had something to do with them getting into the land of Narnia, who is now absolutely terrified, dumbfounded by all that he sees around him. And Lucy is appealing to this terrified man to Aslan. Can Aslan say, can you say, Aslan, something to him that will unfrighten him, that will make him better than he is right now? And Aslan replies as follows. He, that is this man, he thinks great folly, child, but I cannot tell that to this old sinner, and I cannot comfort him either. He has made himself unable to hear my voice. If I spoke to him, he would hear only growlings and roarings. Oh, Adam's sons, how cleverly you defend yourselves against all that might do you good. Indeed we do. And that spiritual confusion, the deafness, the blindness, the defenses against all that would do us good are on full display in the text that we have before us today in John chapter 7. Jesus is literally standing right in front of them. The Son of God is standing directly in front of them speaking and they cannot hear, they cannot see, and they cannot comprehend. What do you say? Oh, may the Lord grant us to be saved from that. May the Lord grant that we would have the ability to listen to Jesus and to hear the words of life that proceed from him. Now, by way of reminder, one of the things that we have seen in the life of Jesus that John presents to us so clearly is that Jesus was a master of taking the mundane, the common things of life, the everyday things of life, and using, whether it was wine or whether it was water or whether it was bread, using those things to communicate to people essential, eternal, and spiritual truth. He takes the things of this world and says, right, good, these are right on your level. You can understand these because you all use them. Now, let me really explain to you life through these things. And he does that again in this passage today. And John shows us that in these little snippets that we have of conversation throughout this chapter. The way I'm going to choose to look at it today is with a bit of consolidation. I'm going to try and allow us to enter into the kinds of questions that people were having when they were having this interaction with Jesus. And, and to consolidate them together, I think there are essentially three questions that are in place. One is, where did he come from? Jesus, that is. Where did he come from? Where's he going? And, and then just finally, that simple question, who is he? Who is this person who is standing in front of us? Those seem to be the pertinent questions for the crowd that is before them today. Those are kind of simple questions. They're the first kind of things that we ask or that we talk about when we meet somebody new. Yeah, where were you born? Where are you from? 
you know, what's going on in your life. You're going to be here for a while. You're heading someplace else. We're trying to figure out, to say it very simply, who you are. These are mundane questions. And what we're going to see is that they're answering or, or asking them on a very mundane level. And Jesus is going to take, take each one of those questions and run with them and take them deeper. And so Jesus is going to call them to go deeper, to consider these things deeper than the appearances may initially suggest. And, and to use the words of the passage that we'll come back to later, Jesus is going to call them when he's standing right in front of them to say, judge with sound judgment. You're listening to me, you're seeing me, but don't judge me by appearances. Judge with sound judgment. So let's work through these questions together. The first one, where, where did he come from? The passage is full of lots of twists and turns. The people are convinced that they know where Jesus comes from. And I understand you're not supposed to end uh, with a preposition. I, from, when, from where did Jesus come? But we're not going to do that today. Where did he come from? Verse 27, but we know where this man comes from. See, even the Bible did it that way. We know where this man comes from. They're convinced that they know exactly where that is. He comes from Galilee. He's the carpenter's son. He's Mary's son. And at least some number of them can say he's our brother. We know exactly where he came from. We know who he is. And for many of them, the very fact that they know or think that they know where he comes from is an end to the question of messianic identity. As soon as that is said, it means that he cannot be the Messiah. Because, as we read in the passage and we can read in other places, uh, the Messiah comes from Bethlehem, right? Verse 42, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And indeed, that's exactly what the scriptures say, right? Micah 5, 2, out of you, O Bethlehem, will come a ruler, will come the one who is to be the ruler of my people. And thus, they say to Nicodemus, the very last verse of this passage, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet comes from Galilee. This is the end. He, he, he's not the Messiah because he doesn't come from Bethlehem, period. But there is another aspect of this that might initially seem a little bit confusing because the fact that they assume he comes from Galilee is, is confusing with this other verse that we find in the second part of verse 27 and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So how, how are we working these two things? Well, it seems to be the case that while there was an understanding of where the Christ would be born, which is to say in Bethlehem, there was a different idea about how he would appear on the scene which is to say that even if he was born in a particular city, when it came to his, uh, his mission of delivering the people of God, that at that particular time, he would appear, he would arise, there would be a suddenness to it, a, a drama to it, because he's coming as the king and ready to lead the people into the deliverance that he had promised. But when they look at Jesus and they think about that, 
they go, that's not the case with Jesus. We have known him, or at least some of us have known him all of our lives. And we've seen him even now for these past couple of years coming in and out of Jerusalem. We know all about him. He did not have some kind of appearance like that. Now, what has provoked, what has spurred these questions are two things. One, the signs that he is doing. People are amazed by the signs. Verse 31, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Okay, so they've, they've got, well, he's, he's appearing, but when he appears, he's doing signs. So maybe, maybe it's him. But it's not only the signs that Jesus was doing that led to these kind of questions about him. Where is he from? And what's the significance of where is he from? But it's also the teaching that Jesus was doing, the words that he spoke. And, and basically, we can see clearly the idea that is being communicated from one to another, from one conversation to another, from one set of people to another, is nobody ever spoke like this. No one talks the way this man talks. No one teaches like he teaches. He doesn't have an education, think about this for a moment, he doesn't have an educational pedigree. We know him. We know he didn't go to Harvard. Where does he get off talking like this, speaking with this kind of authority? And speaking with the authority that allows him even to interpret for them the law of Moses in a definitive and a clear way. Where does he get off speaking, not only with the kind of authority that he has, but with the kind of intimacy that he uses in conversation? When he speaks of God, he keeps using the first person singular possessive pronoun, my, my father, my God, the one who sent me. Where does somebody get off speaking like this? It's unsettling. Besides the fact that it's discomforting, of course, to hear a man who, according to verse 7 and his own testimony, testifies to the world that its works are evil and says to them, none of you keeps the law. Nobody speaks like that. Nobody, nobody has that kind of right to speak in the way that you are speaking. It's as if Jesus is speaking, and he's speaking as one of us because we know where he comes from, and yet he's speaking as if he comes from some other place, as if he's other than we are. Now, interestingly, interestingly, Jesus does not interrupt the conversations and the accusations to say, what? Hey, by the way, I was born in Bethlehem. You may not have heard, but there was a census, and I was born in Bethlehem. He doesn't say that. He, he takes the idea of where are you from back a little bit further, and he says, you shouldn't just be asking where I'm from. You should be asking the question, who sent me? Who sent me? I'm not here in Jerusalem. 
at this feast. I'm not here in Jerusalem because my brothers goaded me into coming. That's what's happening at the beginning of this passage, right? Go ahead. Go ahead. Go, go show yourself in Jerusalem. If you are who you're claiming to be, go and make a big to-do of it at the Feast of the Booze, at the Feast of the Tabernacles. I'm here not because of them, but because I was sent. All right. Okay. Mr. Sent One. Mr. Apostle. Mr. Apostle, if you're the sent one, where are you going now? Where are you going? And when, by the way, are you going, you going if you're the one who is sent? On a mundane level, the beginning of the chapter, the question is leveled out there simply, are you going to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Booths or the Feast of the Tabernacles? Quick parentheses, uh, just so you understand the context, you can read about this in the Old Testament. It is essentially a harvest festival. It is a feast at which you give thanks for the Lord, to the Lord for his abundant provision. And one of the manifestations of that was in association with uh, the time in the wilderness uh, and their sojourning in the wilderness and they lived in temporary places, booths uh, that were constructed along the way. And so this is a, a feast of thanksgiving, a feast of the harvest. Are you going there for that? Very mundane question. And then later in the chapter, when they're in Jerusalem, they wonder if Jesus is going to go out to places. You know, what is he talking about when he says he's going to a certain place? Is he saying that he's going to leave here and he's going to go out to the dispersion, which is to say to the places where other Jews have been scattered because of persecution, or perhaps because there are some now Greeks who have come to fear the Lord in those places? Is that what he's saying? Is he going out to those places? But once again, they're seeing things outwardly. They're seeing these very earthly, mundane questions of where are you headed? Are you going over to Jerusalem? When you leave Jerusalem, are you headed out to the dispersion? Where are you going? And Jesus is, in fact, going deeper and going farther than they could imagine. I'm going, he says, to a place where you can't find me. I'm going to a place where you can't find me. I'm going back to the place from which I was sent, and I'm going to the one by whom I was sent. To the place from which I was sent, to the one by whom I was sent. That is where I'm going. And of course, I don't know if we can put ourselves in their position, but they're looking at him and going, okay, does anyone know what that means? You, know, you can imagine if you're standing there and you're kind of looking at your neighbor going, do you know what that means? And I have no idea what he's talking about. And you look at the person on the other side, do you know what, he, I have no idea what he's talking about. I, where is he talking about when he says that? What is the place? And can we come or can we not come? What's the deal? Can we come or can we not come? What Jesus, in fact, seems to be saying is that on your own, as a matter of fact, you can't come. Verse 34, where I am going, you cannot come. I'm going to a place 
that is closed to you. You won't find your way, you won't make it, you won't be able to get in, but there's another theme that is running through this, and it seems to be this, but if, if, if you come to me, I'll take you there. On your own, you cannot come. But if you come to me, I will take you where I am going. And so right in front of these sons of Adam, these daughters of Eve, is the one who in just a few chapters, John chapter 14, we're obviously not there yet, but in just a few chapters will describe himself as the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And John chapter 10, he'll talk about being the door, the gate by which you can come in. No one knows the Father but me. But oh, how we have made ourselves unable to hear that message. We can't see our nose in front of our faces. And we can't understand when the Son of Man is saying to us, children of Adam and Eve, you only get there through me. And so looking at Jesus, looking directly at him, listening to Jesus, talking to one another, they are befuddled. Even even his own brothers cannot figure out who he is. They can't make sense of it. They can't make it add up. Who is he? And the options are set on the table, and they're clear as they can be throughout the text, right? The first one that's set on the table is in verse 12, and there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he's a good man. He is a good man. Now, we get the idea that behind that statement is probably much more than the speakers of it actually realized. At that point, they're just trying to say probably that, listen, on the whole, relatively speaking, the things that he does are good, and I've heard him speak before, and there's some loving words in what he says. On the whole, he's a good man. And of course, there are others. Verse 12, others said no. He's leading the people astray. So, two options so far. He's a good man. Second option, no, he is a false teacher. He is a false prophet. He's not one who declares the truth. After all, look at how confused we all are. Wouldn't a prophet bring some clarity to our confused minds? He's a false teacher. Option number three is contained in verse 20. Jesus says, why do you seek to kill me? He's speaking broadly here. If he went back to uh, John chapter 5, we would understand that what is here and what is referenced afterwards is the healing that he does of a man on the Sabbath, tells him to get up, and they seek to arrest him, uh, not only because he did it on the Sabbath, but because of the way that he explains it. He makes himself out to be equal with God in the way that he's saying it. It sounds like a blasphemer when he is saying it. So he says then in verse 19, why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answers, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? We're just sitting here listening to you right now. So option number three is this, you're a nut job. You're a nutcase. 
you think that everybody here is out to get you, that everybody here is somewhere out to kill you, but in fact, what you're saying makes no sense. You're off your rocker. To people like that, the words of Jesus sound like so many roarings and so many growlings that take place. And then, of course, there are two other options as we move through this text. 26 says, can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Could it be that they're just pulling the wool over our eyes here, trying to disguise the fact that he actually is the Christ who is coming, verses 40 through 41? When they heard these words, the people said, this really is the prophet and others said, this is the Christ. So you get the final two options in this particular section of Scripture. Prophet or Christ are possibilities about who he is. The presence of Jesus, the words of Jesus, the works of Jesus create turmoil, tumult, and confusion for the people who are around him. They're looking at him, and they're asking questions like, where did you come from, and where are you going, and who in the world are you? And Jesus takes those questions, and he knows the answers to them, and he recognizes that what's ultimately important is not merely that he knows the answers to those questions, but to you. The listeners, the people who are there, do you know the answer to those questions? Because the answer to those questions are going to change everything. They change everything. And in fact, you can even take it one step farther and say that what Jesus is doing is turning it around one more time. Because we could ask of ourselves those questions on a mundane level. Where are you from? I'm from Baltimore. Where are you going? Well, I'm in Philly, and this week I'm going to do this, and next week I'm going to do that. Who are you? Well, I'm a pastor, a dad, granddad, son, etc. I can answer that on a very mundane level, but the questions are deeper than that. Where did humanity come from? Where'd you come from? Tell me. Where are you heading? What happens to you after you die? Yeah, I know you'll go to Philly or you'll go wherever the next town is, but what after that? Where are you heading? Who are you? And the way you answer those questions about Jesus will impact the way you answer them about yourself. Those, th- those things are completely, if surprisingly, interconnected. At the time of John 7, his time, as is made clear, his time, his hour, had not yet come. The clarity of his self-revelation had to wait. It had to wait until the cross, until the resurrection, until the ascension into glory, and until the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost. Without those events, Jesus is ultimately and finally incomprehensible. You can't understand him without them. 
You can't understand, put this for those of you who were in the Sunday school this morning, you can't understand Jesus without the cross. There's no way to make sense of him without the word of the cross. But even so, even at this stage, Jesus says words that they'll be able to come back to, and now we can come to as well, where we started with verse 24 of this. Even so, at this stage, Jesus can say to them, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. What would appearance say? Well, appearance would say, you're a man who was born in Galilee, and you grew up there in Galilee. You're Joseph and Mary's son. We know who you are. But judge with right judgment. Who is he? Yes, to all of those external things, but more than any of those things. And, and Jesus is more specific. In verse 17, Listen to this. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Jesus says, here's the key. You're puzzled by me. You're, you're puzzled by the words that I'm saying. You're puzzled. How do they make sense? Here's the key. The key is, do you want to do God's will? In other words, the key to understanding Jesus is not intellectual competency. That's not the key that will unlock Jesus. Instead, the key that unlocks him is the desire to do God's will. D.A. Carson puts it like this. God's will is not simply to be thought about and assessed as if God is the object we may politely examine, dissect, and discuss, picking and choosing what we like of him. Divine revelation can only be assessed, as it were, from the inside. It'll ping off the, the ears otherwise. It can only be assessed from the inside, from that perspective, perspective, the person who chooses to, go, to do God's will discovers that Jesus' teaching articulates it, that Jesus does not speak on his own, but as the Word of God. So, this day, or these days of this feast, John 7, was another confusing day for the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. For us, it is now a clearer day. It is now clearer than it was before. His glorification through the humiliation of the cross has been accomplished, and the Spirit of God has been broadly distributed to the people of God all around the world. It is a clearer day than this particular day was. Where did Jesus come from? Well, I'm not going to have you say it right now. Where did he come from? He came from his father. Where was Jesus going? And you would all answer, he's going back to his father. Who is he? Who is he can now be preached with clarity. 
He is the Son of God and the Son of Man. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is Lord and God and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, the heralds, the apostles, and those who follow them, and we can speak clearly to the world and say, this is who Jesus is. This is who he is. It is a clearer day than that day. So the Lion of Judah, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, was speaking, and all that some heard were growlings and roarings and warnings. But what the Lion of the tribe of Judah was doing was providing those as a wake-up call. Wake up, hear rightly, see correctly and clearly. Seek to do the will of the Father and you will know that my words are words of truth, that I speak because they were given to me and I was sent. And so the growlings and the roarings become a song, a song to bring us into the presence of God. May we hear and not harden our hearts once again. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, you've done a good work, a sweet work of allowing us the grace of hearing and seeing. And if there are those who are here today who have not understood your voice, for whom it has been muddled, and who instead of believing mutter about you, may today be the day of salvation. May today be the day when the Spirit so works clarity in the heart that out of the heart springs rivers of living water. Jesus, thank you for your mercy. Without it, we are nothing and we are lost. In your name we pray. Amen.